From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. This isn't stopping. So how do you want to do it? AI is not stopping. There's too much money, too much power. The tech industry has a lot of control of this stuff, and they're not stopping. And so how do we want to deal with that? It is not stopping. You have to accept that. That's Kara Swisher. She's a legendary tech journalist who's been covering Silicon Valley and its discontents for over three decades. The co-founder of Recode, Kara now hosts the popular podcasts On with Kara Swisher and Pivot, which she co-hosts with NYU professor Scott Galloway. Kara has interviewed the biggest names in tech and has her finger on the pulse of the industry's most compelling stories. That's why she's joining me to talk about the recent chaos at OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. After a five-day span in which the company's CEO, Sam Altman, was fired and then rehired, the stability and direction of artificial intelligence is in question. Kara and I talk about what happened, what it means for the future of AI, and how much AI's potential dangers should impact its development. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Silas, who writes, Hello, Preet. I hope life finds you well, and may you live forever. <laughs> the Q shaman is already out of jail and running for Congress. As a convicted felon, is he allowed to run for office, but not vote for himself? That would be a constitutional oopsie if ever there was one. Well, Silas, thank you for the good wishes. Thank you for saying what you said. I don't know that I want to live forever, but I'd like to live for a long time still. But thank you. So Silas is obviously referring to a man by the name of Jacob Chansley who became famous after the January 6th riot and insurrection and became known as the QAnon shaman. He's the guy, as you may remember, who wore the distinctive horned headdress and face paint as he stormed the Capitol back on January 6th of 2021. Chansley, the QAnon shaman, was convicted of a crime, a felony, of obstructing an official proceeding related to the January 6th attack. He pled guilty to that charge and was sentenced to 41 months in prison a couple of years ago. He was released to a halfway house last March, and he's supposed to serve a three-year term of supervised release following the conclusion of his prison sentence. So if you look at Arizona law, it's my understanding that once you're convicted of a felony, your voting rights are automatically restored only upon completion of all supervised release. And so since that condition has not yet been satisfied, my understanding is under Arizona law, you wouldn't be able to vote. But as you point out, Silas, the QAnon shaman has announced his candidacy as a libertarian for Arizona's 8th Congressional District. There is nothing in the law in Arizona that I'm aware of, or under federal law, or in the Constitution, that bars someone from having been convicted from running for office. So I congratulate you on coining a very good new legal term, constitutional oopsie, which I think does capture quite well this idea that you can run for office, but can't vote for yourself. The more famous example of this will be, likely, of course, the Donald Trump situation, where he is possibly going to be convicted of multiple crimes in multiple jurisdictions. And depending on where he's convicted and what the local laws are, like in Florida, 
He may not be able to vote for himself, though, like with Congress, with respect to the presidency, Donald Trump, even if convicted, will have no constitutional, legal, or statutory bar against running for and winning the presidency once again. Constitutional oopsie, indeed. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at James A. Lancaster. And yes, I'm not yet used to calling it X. I will continue to call it Twitter indefinitely. The question is, can SCOTUS justices be disbarred for unethical conduct? If so, would that prevent them from hearing cases? So as far as I know, judges who are lawyers in every instance are subject to the bar rules like every other lawyer is. And if they engage in conduct that's extremely unethical or criminal or crosses lines that various bars have put in place, they should be able to be subject to disbarment proceedings just like anyone else. And of course, yes, if you are disbarred, I believe you'd be prevented from hearing cases. But I think the more likely result or consequence of crossing serious ethical or criminal lines for a sitting judge, including Supreme Court justices, is impeachment. And we've talked about this before. That's set forth in the Constitution at Article 2, Section 4, which says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And the way that the constitutional provision has been interpreted for a very long time, federal judges clearly qualify as civil officers of the United States. So it happens from time to time that a federal judge is impeached under this provision. According to a report by the Brennan Center from 2022, quote, with respect to federal judges since 1803, the House of Representatives has impeached only 15 judges, an average of one every 14 years. And only eight of those impeachments were followed by convictions in the Senate. And you may be wondering, what about Supreme Court justices? as well? The Brennan Center report goes on to say, Justice Samuel Chase is the only Supreme Court justice the House has impeached, and he was acquitted by the Senate in 1805. So there is a process in place that would cause a justice not to be able to hear cases, be removed from office, removed from their seat. But as I just mentioned, it is exceedingly rare and unlikely to happen in the near future. This question comes in an email from David, who asks, do federal judges typically consult with other judges before making rulings on high-profile complex cases, the Trump cases, for example? For example, I'm wondering if federal judge Eileen Cannon relied on advice from other judges or academics whom she consulted regarding her controversial decision to appoint a special master to review evidence obtained in the Mar-a-Lago search that was eventually overturned by a federal appeals court. And more recently, Judge Tanya Chutkin's partial gag order that the judge just decided to restore unless a higher court intervenes. I'm a longtime faithful listener and CAFE member. Thanks for the great lineup of guests and outstanding show. So David, these are very, very smart questions and insightful ones. Now, with respect to the particular examples that you mentioned, Eileen Cannon and Tanya Chutkin, I don't know and have no idea and have no way of knowing if they relied on advice from other judges or folks. As, as an initial matter, judges rely principally on their own study, experience, understanding. Secondarily, they rely very heavily also on their law clerks. In my experience, people who I know who are judges, friends and colleagues and people I've appeared before, they do from time to time call upon a colleague, particularly if they're a new or novice judge and may present a hypothetical scenario, or may even talk about what they're thinking about in terms of a sentence for someone, because other judges have a lot of experience, and they bounce ideas off of them. There's nothing improper about that, nothing inappropriate about that. My sense, though, is it doesn't happen all that often. And as judges become more and more mature and get more and more seasoned, they consult with colleagues minimally. I may be wrong about that, and if I have judge friends who are listening, send in a note and correct me. It's an odd kind of thing. I, I make this point 
in a similar context in the book I wrote a few years ago. Unlike many other professions, including specifically the legal profession, where most people have the opportunity to learn and grow from watching their colleagues, not only watching their colleagues, also watching their adversaries, and also calling upon them with questions they have about how they should do their job. I, for example, as a partner in a law firm now, routinely talk about my cases with my fellow partners and lawyers and ask them questions. I will sometimes ask people outside of the law firm about their experiences with certain kinds of cases and certain judges and how we might best proceed and what the best practices are. That's a normal everyday part of most workplaces. What's sort of interesting about judges, obviously judges can learn and improve themselves by reading their colleagues' opinions because those are published for the public. But by and large, once you become a judge and you wear the robe, and particularly if you have life tenure in a federal court, you never again walk into another judge's courtroom. So you don't get the benefit of seeing how another judge may handle a witness, how another judge may engage in a sentencing proceeding, how another judge controls the courtroom. All of that learning, in some ways, unfortunately, stops at the time you're confirmed and sworn in as a federal judge. In almost every other profession, as I mentioned, you get the benefit of watching other people do what you do to see how to do it better. If you're a journalist, if you're a TV anchor, if you're an athlete, you get to watch other players. You get to watch other journalists. You get to watch other lawyers practice their craft, and you learn from that. And in fact, if you didn't do those things, you'd be committing a form of malpractice. I don't have a solution to the problem. It's just sort of an odd predicament that judges are in, that they become kind of more insular uh, and separated from other people who practice their profession after they become judges and have life tenure. But it's an interesting question you ask, and maybe it's the case that judges should do it more often. I want to think about that some more. I'll be right back with my conversation with Kara Swisher. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The tech world was thrown for a loop when OpenAI's CEO Sam Altman was fired suddenly and then rehired just days later. Renowned journalist Kara Swisher joins me to break down what happened and what it means. Kara Swisher, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Preet. I'm very delighted to be talking to you for a lot of reasons. Oh, okay. But primarily this week, I thought no one better in America or in the world or frankly in the universe to talk to us about all the ups and downs and crazy happenings in AI generally, but then yeah. specifically at OpenAI. Yeah. And people may be following the story a little bit that one of the founders, the CEO of the company, yeah. Sam Altman was fired, then he was unfired. Questions about the board, about the structure, large questions looming with respect to that company and the whole industry at large about AI and the future of AI. And I know you've been tracking it very closely. Yes, I, there is no one better. I broke quite a few of the stories, so <laughs> I know. happy to help. Well, um, thank you for your modesty. Well, you know, when you won a case, did you go, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't remember now. It's been a long time. True, that's true. Can we just remind everyone, OpenAI, known mostly to the general public 
for one of its products, ChatGPT. Yes. There are other products on the horizon. They kind of burst on the scene, although people in the know like you, who have been covering the industry and covering tech for a long time, have known about the company and have understood the company. So let's go back to the beginning. OpenAI, a nonprofit? Uh, it was, initially. It was started by people like Elon Musk and, and uh, Sam uh, Altman and many others because they thought there were too many big companies that were going to dominate AI, and they had concerns about its development and the commercialization of a product that could impact humanity. So it was founded in good thoughts, I guess, in terms of the tech industry. In about 2015, is that right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the universe, a fairly young company, nonprofit or not. It is. But then in 2019, it started a, a for-profit arm. Yes, it had to. It ha Why did it have to? Because it costs so much to do the compute. The reason why big companies dominate here is the compute is really expensive. And so this was, they thought they would rely on the donations of people, and that wasn't going to be the case. I think Elon gave $100 million, But, you know, these are billion-dollar computer systems, billions and billions of dollars that it takes to, to do the compute here. And so only big companies could compete. And so they needed to have a for-profit arm to take their products. It was a little like what happened to... Uh, Mozilla, you know, it became a profit arm, um, although not as big as this one, but it, a very similar thing. Is it, it started off with these sort of lofty purposes and then realized pretty quick that someone has to pay the bills. So it went from, obviously, in 2015, before it existed, at a $0 value, up yeah. to, I guess, about last week, approximating something on the order of $90 billion? Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, and the funding, because they also brought in fundings from Microsoft was the principal one, but other some venture firms. Microsoft to the tune of what, 12, 13 billion? Well, it was included compute. It wasn't yeah. precisely just cash. It was use of compute and the and it hadn't given everything over. And that was one of the things that was holding over the head of, of this company was that it didn't have to keep helping, essentially. By the way, just while we're on it, and we'll get back to the drama in a moment, the release of ChatGPT, was that was that timely? Should that have happened earlier? Did that happen too soon? Well, it, no, it was when the product was ready, right? So they wanted to they wanted to get ahead because everybody else was working on this. You know, the minute a Google comes out with it or an Amazon or or Meta or whatever, Meta slash Facebook, they were going to be in trouble. And of course, Microsoft's addition of the money, they wanted to, they had lost out on search. Uh, Bing had lost out really badly to Google. And so they wanted, uh, they, they really needed to get a product out there to be the leader. It was really important. So let's set the stage for the, the weirdness of, la of last week. It's founded as a nonprofit. It then starts, an, uh, it starts a for-profit arm, as you said, because it had to. Increases in valuation to the tune of tens and tens of billions of dollars. But what was the corporate structure? And who was on the board? It, it still had the structure of a nonprofit, even though it was a highly profitable company? Right. Yes, exactly. And so what it did is the profit arm was under the nonprofit. So the nonprofit board kept monitoring. Again, this happened at several other companies. Mozilla was, is the one I bring to mind most, which was the Mozilla browser. And so, and then it sold its browser to Google, you know, the use of its browser, license it. And so the profit arm was under the nonprofit arm and it was controlled by the board of the nonprofit company. And there was no board for the profit company. It was just the uh, CEO, Sam Altman. And the board of the nonprofit that ran the, the for-profit part, yeah, fairly, fairly small and somewhat academic-oriented? Very much so. Well, it was a bigger board until recently. They had Reed Hoffman on it. There was a, a woman named Siobhan Zillis. 
and uh, Will Hurt, of all people, um, was on it. And so it was a nine, I think it was a nine-person board. So that's a little better from a board perspective. Um, and then they left for various reasons. Reed had started his own competing company, for example. And I don't know why Will left. But uh, so that was a much smaller board, which included Sam and people that he had worked with. And then there were these three other board members. And the people who were sort of the, they're called decel people, the ones that were more concerned with problems of AI, the P-Doom people, had gained control and they couldn't decide on new board members is the problem. And so usually it was pretty, you know, someone compared it to the Supreme Court, it was even, and then it wasn't even. And so they got to pass some laws that the others didn't like, essentially. Let's fast forward to about November 17th. And out of nowhere, the board fires the CEO, who, by the way, maybe you should mention for a moment what his reputation was within the company and within the industry the moment before he found out he was being fired. He was beloved, you know, I mean, compared to, I mean, he had his issues, like everyone has their issues, Preet. Um, but he certainly was. You someone, and I don't have our issues. Yeah, but we have some people that are <laughs> critics of us. So he was, you know, well-known. I met him when he was a kid, when he was doing this company called Looped. I don't, it was a location-based kind of thing. It didn't make it. Uh, nice guy. Then he went on to Y Combinator. He's he's very peripatetic. He's got a lot of entrepreneurial interests, including in energy, et cetera, and makes lots of investments everywhere. Um, and he had a good reputation. He'd become the face of Chat GPT. Going to Congress, he spent a lot of time talking about the problems, which a lot of internet people did not do, haven't done. Um, and so he became the famous face of it. And so he outshone this board, obviously, which probably was an issue in it. And it became, in their minds, too much of a profit-making engine that got too much of the weight. Uh, and of course, they flex their power then. Was there any warning at all to anyone, to investors, to the public, no. to Microsoft? Well, you know, we probably should have been paying attention because the board was so small. But I think that what happened is this one board member, um, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Ilya I think Satskiver, I think it's correct way to pronounce it. He was the chief uh, scientist and really the he's the inventor of this, really, in a lot of ways. And I mean, there's a team, obviously, but he's sort of the inventor. Think of him like a Steve Wozniak and Sam Altman is Steve Jobs, right? If you want to make that comparison. And he changed his mind on Sam Altman. He had been demoted a little bit within the organization. And I think he was he was worried. He became worried and he sided with the the doom scrollers, essentially. And there were other things at play. It wasn't just the doom. I think the two uh, women board members certainly had a point of view on on the dangers of AI. I'm not so sure about uh, Adam D'Angelo, who's from Facebook and and has run Quora, and he had his own AI company. He, there might have been some, you know, self-interested issues there for him, too. I thought that the firing was accompanied by a statement alleging that Sam Altman had not been candid with the board. Yes, what they was did that, say that. What was that about? I have no idea, and we don't to this we day. We still don't know, right? No, we still don't know. You know, I think he he was trying to get rid of one board member, Helen Toner, uh, for writing this piece uh, that really insulted the company. You really can't write a piece if you're a board member insulting the company. You should get off the board, really, pretty much. It's <laughs> yeah. um, a good and, rule of thumb. Yeah, and, and she was very much through this other company called Anthropic, which was a bunch of people who left OpenAI, which is fine. That happens all the time, who had a different uh, you know, point of view on the safety issues. And she wrote this piece, and he was trying to get her removed from the board. And I suspect he might have been 
sneaky in that, which is what what a shock the sneaky board member things. Um, but they had never come up with anything. Did he? Were they upset about investments? Did he made? Were they upset that he visited uh, the Gulf states to get more money for other projects, including a, a hardware device or a chip? They were thinking of doing chips. He was doing his job, looking around at things, and I think they thought he was acting high handedly. And I guess they didn't feel dialed in. Now, these boards are, this is not the board's job, by the way. The board's job is to hire and fire a CEO. That is the board's job. It is not to run the company, but they felt like they should. They felt that they had more of a, an ability to do so. And so that's really what happened in a lot of ways. To your knowledge, was there any back and forth? No, he didn't know. I think he was shocked when I texted him. He's like, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I know, I think he must have understood tensions, certainly, but I don't think, you know, but that's, uh, you know, if you have a nonprofit board sitting on a profit board, guess what? You're going to have tensions. You and so I think, I think he probably understood the tension part, but not the, not the fire. He didn't think they'd go that far. I think he was probably, I can't believe they did this, although impressed, you know, probably impressed. <laughs> so, so the reaction, first of all, I guess there's, there's lots of stakeholders here and constituencies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's the, the general public, there's the investing public, there's the particular investing folks in the company itself. And then there's the employees. Let's, let's take those one at a time. The public reaction to the sudden firing of Sam Altman was what? What? <laughs> okay, that, like, w- I couldn't WTF. believe it. WTF? Like, what? What the heck? I think everybody. Like, I called around that night and everyone, like, that day, and literally very well-known people didn't know what was going on, including Microsoft. Um, you know, previous board members, they were all, like, caught unawares. They were, Everyone was aware of tension, but that's, again, any given day of any board has a tense situation. And so uh, even Microsoft had not found out about it until about a minute before, which shows how bad this board is. You can't really pull off a coup. It's not a coup because they're the board, so you can't really say it's a coup, but it kind of felt like one, you know. It was certainly a surprise. And then the employees yeah. did, did something interesting yeah. within days. What, what did they do? What they, they, what they did is, uh, and I had been talking to employees who were also surprised, right? And so they got together and they said, you know, first of all, we had a meeting with you, including several of the top executives under Altman said, we had a meeting and we asked for specifics and you wouldn't give us any. And they were very unspecific, you know, the board was. And one of the board members allegedly said, even if we have to ruin this company, it's for the best, right? That Which is not a thing you want to hear from a board member, right? Like, well, then get off the board, same person. And so anyway, they, they, they met with them and then were unhappy with that meeting and then got together and wrote an open letter by this time, it had been announced that he was going to Microsoft, by the way. Uh, Sam, Microsoft had offered Sam an entire division uh, to run, to do, to work on their their version of ChatGPT, essentially, or this this technology that they licensed from ChatGPT. And so they said, we'll even go to Microsoft, which is like, I'll even go to Jersey City for this guy. Or Jersey City's nice, actually, now, right? Um, yeah, watch so, it. That's my, yeah, I know. That's Sorry. I apologies. <laughs> I hear it's my son loves Jersey City. Um, so, uh, you know, going somewhere we don't want to go, right? But nobody, you know, nobody wants to become a vice president at Microsoft if you're part of an entrepreneurial culture, even though it's a very good company. But you know what I mean? It's, it was yeah. It was unprecedented. And most of the companies signed it. I think they had... 700 of 770 workers. And one of the signatories was the guy who fired, one of this chief scientist who had fired Sam Altman. So that was a little- Yeah, so explain that, the change of heart. 
on the part I, of Ilya. You know, I think he realized he'd done worse. He he now put power into the hands of Microsoft. I think he realized he had done more damage by his action. I, I suspect he was the only one who really had pure motives here, although I suspect he was demoted, so probably was unhappy with the situation. So he changed his mind. And so he was essentially saying to himself, you suck. You're looking in the mirror and saying you suck. So. And who hasn't done that on occasion? Yes, not me, but go ahead. Um, yeah. Well, I've never done it publicly. Okay. Um, privately, that, that's for another time. Yeah. So how did the board react to this reaction? Do, do they totally not see this coming? I don't know how they couldn't have read the room. You know what I mean? They, I guess they thought they had the room, but Sam had the room, right? They didn't. Um, I think they probably didn't have much interaction with the employees. And I suspect that meeting was like the first time they had, had been exposed to these people, right? And so they said, well, we're leaving. We don't like you. We like him. And we're going to go over to Microsoft and put you out of business, essentially. So Was this a great opportunity for Microsoft? Oh, 100%. Well, it was a bad thing for Microsoft to be put in this position, right? And it recovered really beautifully. Satya Nadella was very much part of these discussions. But I think he was surprised that he had no purview into what was going on here, any view into what was going on here. And he he immediately moved to fix it. And they didn't have a board seat. They didn't have an observer status. And and I think, I suspect now they will. It's still- That'll it's probably still, change. Absolutely. If I were them, 100%. So how does someone go from being, because we, we have not said there was anything illegal or unlawful mm-hmm. about the firing. They had the power. There was this odd board structure yeah. because of the hybrid nature of the company, nonprofit and for-profit. How does somebody go from being fired one day and five days later rehired? Well, it's called a circus. You know, it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> Silicon Valley dramatic circus. I mean, any any given Tuesday at Twitter feels like this. Um, so, you know, I it, it's this, this is a bad board, right? This is an inexperienced board who didn't didn't have what it thought it had. You know, it, it only had the righteousness their 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 righteousness, which everyone thought was not really good enough reason for doing how they did what they did. If they had difference of opinion, there was lots of ways to deal with this, right? But instead, they decided to try to kill the king, I guess, and and missed. And so, you know, it put a lot more power in the hands of Microsoft, for sure. And now there'll be a bigger board. Now, one board member, Adam D'Angelo, stayed. He, he was very stubborn and refused to leave. And eventually, in the interest of getting this settled, because, you know, you saw all this value pull away from the company immediately. You know, they settled it. Um, they'll probably they'll probably be a much bigger board. There will be a much bigger board and a, a much more even keeled board with safety issues sort of addressed more prominently, I suppose, and a better governing boards, probably professional board members, people who know how to run a board. This is a counterfactual, I guess, but what would have been the fate of OpenAI had Sam Altman not been able to be unfired? Oh, it would have been killed. They brought in a CEO, perfectly nice guy from Twitch, but I think everyone would have, they, all the employees would have left and then they would have been stuck with a contract with Microsoft that Microsoft could have gotten out of because they wouldn't have been able to deliver the promises they made to Microsoft. So I think the value would have gone out, the investors would have left and all of that would have flown elsewhere. Um, they They didn't want this this ridiculous clown car of a board in charge. Nobody wanted it. So I'm going to I'm going to set you up with a softball right down the middle. <laughs> okay. So people have been saying, and I have I'm on board with the uh, conclusion that that AI in all its forms, and we'll talk about future forms as well, is um, revolutionary. Yes. 
one of the most transformative technologies in the history of humankind. Could I really be. believe that to be true. And you have one of the largest players, if not the most famous player in the in the industry, in the area, uh, OpenAI, that at the drop of a hat can go from being in that position and this most transformative technology of our lifetimes and perhaps of our century to going down the toilet. What does that say? So here's the softball. What does that say about the maturity of this incredibly important and somewhat dangerous industry? Well, imagine if this had happened to Google early on. And there's certainly a lot of people worried about Larry and Sergey at the time, let me say. I mean, they wanted to get rid of them. Um, Many times they brought in Eric Schmidt as the solution in that case. That was a smart thing for the board to do. Um, Imagine if they had thrown them out the window, right? There wouldn't be Google. There wouldn't. There wouldn't. And everyone was loyal to them. And so you could have seen it happening. Um, I think these companies, early stages, and there's so many companies now, so much funding going on. It's anybody's ball, right? It just happens So it doesn't really matter, right? So nobody misses MySpace. No, exactly right. That's exactly right. MySpace was innovative at the time, but then someone at Facebook uh, supplanted it. Um, It happens all the time. There was a company... Uh, even before that, oh, what was the name of it? It was it was even better. You know, it got it, it had been offered to be bought by Google, and the guy turned it down. Turned down the offer to start a social Mistake. network. Yeah. I know. I remember saying to him, "You know, you are an idiot." He would have been a billionaire. <laughs> um, so, so is that all to say that we that we should that we should be sanguine about this because there are enough players in the industry that yes. you know people fall and people rise, and it's okay. Well, the worry is there's too many powerful players, right? It now goes to the to the victor, goes the spoils, and the spoils go to the big companies. And I think that consolidation is the issue. Is there enough innovation, or is there a company like a Google to come out of it? Google came out of Microsoft, right? The Microsoft fight because they had an opening, they had a lane because of the trial, right, that was happening. And so, without Google, all kinds of things, or without you know Apple being recovered, there wouldn't be an app economy. And so. Like, is there a lane for innovative companies to thrive here if the big companies, and these, the problem is this takes so much money and computing power. Can there be lots of businesses built off of these businesses the way the Apple built the App Store and then there's Uber, right, or or whatever, Airbnb? Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I think I worry that there's not going to be a a bunch of independent players. That's my worry in general about the entire industry. So you have a worry about at some point, over-consolidation and monopolization. I hate to say that was Elon Musk's worry and Sam Altman's worry when they started this company, right? It's called OpenAI. So that, and and I did a very good interview with Elon when he was speaking sensibly about this, worries about big companies dominating. We talked about it all the time and he was correct. Big companies dominating uh, the next age of computing. And so, I mean, credit where credit's due. He was talking about it early and often. Um, And so was Sam. Um, and so that's, I think, the worry is that, and that's where they broke too. Is he get, he took money from Microsoft? He was take, he was moving in a different direction than Elon wanted, and of course Elon started his own company, Grok. So I do agree there should be lots of people in this industry. I do worry about consolidation. That's probably my biggest worry. One of them. Do you think that the the government is capable of and is ready to police that kind of thing from the antitrust perspective? Yes, absolutely. Okay. 100%. But they're capable of it. Whether they do it or not well, is another question. They're still, that would have been a better question. They're, they're doing a lawsuit over search. You heard about that? That was yeah. 20, 20 years ago, right? So that's where they're on now. So I suspect they'll get to chat uh, GPT <laughs> when we're dead. Maybe I if guess. they use AI. Yeah, um, yeah. So You were saying a moment ago, imagine if this happened at Google or some other company, and you've already mentioned Steve Jobs. 
oh, it could have happened at Google. They thought they were crazy. They thought those founders were crazy. And Mark Zuckerberg had an opportunity to sell Facebook uh, to Yahoo at one point, and uh, he turned it down. And only because he had the power to do so, but the venture capitalists would have sold them out in seconds. I mean, it's hard to judge which of those important inflection points, whether it was the right thing to sell or not sell. It's it's easier in hindsight for a couple of podcasters. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was there. I was yeah, there. I yeah, remember yeah. them wanting to to get rid of Larry and Sergey, or or not being. Now it's all you know, sunshine and roses. But they were. It was a, a cover of Fortune back then called Chaos at Google. You know, because of the way it was run, it was it was one crazy. There was all kinds of stuff going on there. So I mentioned Steve Jobs because some people have been. Maybe you did this also. Have analogized the Sam Altman situation to the Steve Jobs situation. I mean, there's obviously one big difference. <laughs> Steve Jobs was fired by his board at Apple and then rehired 11 years later. Mm-hmm. Sam Altman was rehired in about a half a Scaramucci, if you use that metric of time. Yes. Um, are there parallels there or is that a silly analogy? Well, I think we're not clear if Sam deserves that title, the Steve Jobs title. That's a big title. I, yeah. You know, he certainly does a lot of things that look like Steve Jobs, right? He does the praying hands thing. He does Black the, turtleneck? Yeah, he does. Well, he's not quite down there. He's not down the Elizabeth Holmes road, but um, but he's definitely- that, That's a bad analogy. Yeah, well, she, that's what she was doing. Um, I think it's interesting. I think the accomplishments aren't there yet, right? Uh, Steve came back and Apple was almost dead when Steve took over after they had ran it into the ground after he left. And, and you know, you don't remember any of those board members, you know, just remember his triumphant return. Silicon Valley's in love with that story, by the way. They love that idea of resurrection and, you know, the Jesus-like characters too. Um, so this is a Silicon Valley story. I'm not so sure Sam has proven yet. Steve Jobs had a record, right? Had a bit of a yeah. record. So we'll see. It takes some time. Yeah. I'll be right back with Kara Swisher after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We've had on the on the show a guest who I know you know well, and Scott Galloway knows well, and has been a, a speaker at Code, a professor at NYU Stern, Aswath Damodaran. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's fantastic. And some of this conversation we're having and preparing for this interview, I was thinking about some of the things he said about how at different stages, companies need a different kind of CEO. They do. Can you address that? And, and maybe generally, and then maybe specifically in the AI world, what, what are the kinds of CEOs we need and how do they need to be different in the future? Well, you know, some CEOs do make it through. Yeah. Bill Gates, right? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. But they, they are definitely doubted, you know, early, early on. Um, like Mark, well, he had control, so it didn't matter. He just decided to stay, you know, or Pierre Omidyar left eBay and Meg Whitman came in. So that was a good thing when it, she did a great job in building it up. 
And so it just depends on the person. It depends on the control of the board. It depends on the influence of the VCs. And so, again, I don't know what makes a good one because Mark managed to be a good one. Bill Gates managed to be a good one. Um, Others did not. They stayed in and they were way over their skis. And that happens a lot. And again, they, they often bring in people like they brought in Sheryl Sandberg to help Mark Zuckerberg, right? That was critical. I think Facebook would have had a very different story without her there, for sure. There's a the piece by David Streitfeld in the New York Times making this analogy between Steve Jobs and um, and Sam Altman. And one of the things he says is, uh, quote, one of those persistent cliches is that of the visionary founder, end quote. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I do sometimes. You know, I think that, again, <laughs> it's the Jesus complex, although Jobs was very visionary, right? So I don't know what to say. I've just been recently looking back at a lot of interviews I did with him, and he really had a lot of stuff right from the very beginning and, and very prescient. Um, but they liked that idea. You know, Elon was going for that for a while, that, that mantle, um, and it's sort of taken an alleyway, a different alleyway. Um, but yeah, I think they like that idea of the great leader. I don't think that's a, a new and fresh thing. I think it, it just doesn't happen in other industries because they're not new. And this is a new industry. These are the actual founders. And I suspect Henry Ford, or who turned out to be not a great person, you know, and others at the time were very touted, right? When they were in their, when they were founding it, the founders of anything get that attention. And then later the the professionals take over and then it's not quite the thing. Although some, some CEOs like Lee Iacocca, remember he was kind of thought, yeah. of, you know, but that was a lot of PR if you really want to be honest. Was it? Yeah. That means he did some good things, but you know, he wasn't, there was, there was, a, I always think there's a lot of people involved in why things succeed. And you know, one time Steve Jobs was mad about the idea that he did everything. And he, but off, offhand to me, he was like, what do they think? I'm Willy Wonka and all my staff is the Oompa Loompas. Like, <laughs> he was like, there's a whole, and of course you can see that now. It's it's surpassed him. You know, it's Tim Cook and the others who were there have, uh, I think it's 10 times the value of the company. You know, everyone's like, it's over because Steve Jobs is gone. It wasn't over by a long stretch. If you had had that point of view, you would have lost a lot of money as an investor. So, I, you know, I think it, it's nice to have that idea. And I, it's a little bit, Steve understood PR in that regard, all those photos he took and hugging a computer, et cetera. He was a master at marketing. But I think there's, there's a little bit too much in that. I don't think anyone's irreplaceable in that regard. And it, sometimes it's a problem. Like Mark Zuckerberg really needs a lot more input from other people, right? That's been clear for a long time. I saw someone post on social media recently the following bit of advice. To, uh, to corporate leaders. Um, it's something like, if you have two candidates you're looking at for a leadership position and they're they're otherwise equal, yep. and one is very charismatic and one is not, choose the non-charismatic one. Ah, yeah, possibly. A, because maybe that person has other qualities, but B, that person got as far as the other candidate without charisma. <laughs> ah, oh, that's interesting. What do you think of that? I think charisma is important. I think feeling a purpose, you know, think about it, not just think about it in government, think about it in... It's never really about policy. Like it's about charisma, right? There's there's a charisma to our candidates. Um, same thing in legal. I would imagine in in legal stuff, right? Don't you? Isn't isn't the more charismatic lawyer? Well, the problem with charisma is Riz. It's called Riz. The young people. Yeah, call I know. It Riz. <laughs> yeah, uh, my kids had to explain both that to me and also. You sound so mid. Drip. Sorry. Drip. Yeah. No, that's old. That's old. <laughs> yeah. Well, so am I. Yeah. Um, if you have a lot of charisma, you can also cheat and defraud and fool people. That's right. And we mentioned Elizabeth Holmes. There are various junctures in her saga, as I'm sure you know better than anybody, 
where it should have fallen apart and the emperor had no clothes and that should have been discovered. And then by force of personality and enthusiasm and charisma, as I understand it, she convinced a very distinguished board at her company, um, but not a very knowledgeable board about the product that they were alleged to be making. Their doubts were overcome by charisma. Mm -hmm. And I think that's yeah. also dangerous in politics. Look, yeah. Donald Trump. Charismatic. I'm going to get a lot of mail about this. Whatever mm -hmm. you think of him, he has charisma. He does. With tens and tens of millions of people. And it can be used to dangerous purpose. That, you know, one of the reasons we have founded our country the way we founded it with checks and balances was to guard against, you know, the overly charismatic and populist mm -hmm. fraud. So mm -hmm. that is correct. Good and bad. Yeah. I want to go back to this debate and talk about it, whether it's a good faith debate or I think it is the way we began this conversation about the concerns people have about AI being good or bad, effective or destructive. Is AI dangerous and needs to be regulated? Is it going too fast? Because my, my sense is that some of these academics on the board at, at OpenAI had a good faith concern that maybe too much was happening too fast. Is that right? Um, I think they, they weren't technical. They might have had more technical expertise if they're going to make comments like that. I, I feel the same way about myself. And so people I trust feel like it's a little more in the middle, right? That there's these, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, say, uh, Jeff Hinton and others. And he's the one from Google that left saying, I didn't realize how dangerous it would be. And I think he was just calling out the real, he wants some level of you know, accountability and regulation. And so that was that's what he would say, right? I think most people I talk to think there's issues are much more in the middle. And that's that's where I would go. Um, that's where I would go is that there's, if you can, there's some immediate term risks around jobs, around social, I don't want to say social justice, but discrimination. There's obviously those um, that we could mitigate right now, that mitigation and regulation would probably bring to heal. Then there are some longer-term issues that everyone in the globe has to decide on. Killer robots, development of, you know, pandemics using AI, that a no for com countries, right? That have to be global decision-making. It has to happen where everybody agrees. Now, not everyone's going to agree, but in general, the world has to get behind certain rules of the road for AI. And the idea that it's going to become self-aware or that it's reached uh, this status, this AGI, uh, we've reached artificial general intelligence, and it can think for itself, people I have talked to who I have relied on seem to think that's overblown at this point, at this moment. It's overblown that that's dangerous or it's overblown that we'll get there? Oh, that's the hope, right? We're going to get to the moon. Like nobody thought we could get to the moon, right? We got to the moon. You know, I think they think they can get these computing systems there. It just depends on how it manifests itself. I, I think a lot of time, you know, I was at a dinner party decade ago where this was the discussion, which was the, this P doom, which is the probability of doom, right? That's the, it's P and then doom in brackets. Um, what is your P-do? They used to talk about this, which was, of course, a typical thing to happen at a Silicon Valley party. But And, and a lot of them thought that was the case. But these people have been steeped in sci-fi and Terminator and gaming. And they do have that attitude that this is where it inevitably heads. And I think it inevitably heads to good things, right? Why not focus in on cancer research and healthcare and education and that kind of stuff. And so you immediately do go to the doom scenarios versus the positive ones. So I, I do think with good regulation, good transparency, a lack of centralization and consolidation, we can mitigate a lot of this stuff and anticipate it, by the way, anticipate it. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this and this is not a fully formed thought, but you know, I'm a lawyer. 
-hmm. And I've practiced law and I've overseen cases and I comment about the law and I've written a book and all of that stuff, right? And, And one of the themes of my work is it is very, very difficult to have a perfectly balanced system of regulations and rules and laws because life is complicated and people are complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And that's with you know, a, a system of human beings who have fairly good reasoning skills and discretion. And it is hard to make up a rule that in every circumstance causes the proper outcome. And that's for humans. Now think about how difficult it is to come up with a set of rules that governs the behavior of AI entities. Well, they don't know. We don't know. I just, I'm just worried that it's very, very difficult. So if, so if you have an AI entity uh, whose goal is to help people, that's terrific. But you have to balance that against, you know, the means and methods of helping people. Right. Um, are you allowed to cheat and steal? Are you allowed to take from other countries? Are you allowed to do all sorts of other things? To help people, it becomes very complicated to construct. Sure, but that's how humans system. operate too, right? Don't yeah, I mean, we kind of suck system. often at it. <laughs> right, I mean, <laughs> Maybe hello. Maybe the AI will be better. I don't know. That, is that, you're, you're very optimistic. I, I'm not optimistic. I just don't. I'm not a techno-optimist and I'm not a doom scroller. This is what it is. Is I can see the positives in, the in it very clear, clearly. You can clearly see the positives in it. Um, and I felt that way about the early internet. But you could see, look, what, look, what about the car? All right, say a car or a plane. Let's not make it because in a hundred years, there's going to be a real crisis of climate. What would you do, right? Well, oh, maybe not. But then we'd be stuck not having cars and whatever you think of cars. I thought you were going to go in a different direction about cars, not about climate. But humanity was prepared to endure a shocking number of car deaths. Yes, they were. And it's interesting to me. I think, I don't know what the number is now, 25, 30,000 people in America die every year. That's right. In car accidents. And most people don't say, I'm not getting in a car. You have two plane crashes in 2024. Lots of people stop flying. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? No, I can't. <laughs> I, can't. AI I don't know why people are scared it. of lots of things that they're scared of. You know, I, the way I look at, uh, look at it is that you can't anticipate, you know, it's something I spent a lot of time anticipating. And I think one of the problems with tech people are is they don't anticipate anything. And, you know, I was in rooms with Facebook people around their, around their live feeds. And I'm like, oh, when, when someone's going to murder, put a GoPro on their head and murder people. Like, obviously, and they were like, Kara, you're just terrible. And I was like, what? Like, hello. Like, I'm. This, that's just an easy one. That's an easy, you know, that's a low-hanging fruit of this ter- terrible fruit of this tree. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, in 2019, I sketched out a scenario where Donald Trump lost the election, said it was a fraud, and then went on social media to gin up all kinds of, of anger and then ask his people to do something about it. And everyone, I, I remember getting a call from the, from top brass at Twitter saying I was irresponsible for saying that. And I was like, really? Seems like it could happen. Like, I think that's really what it, what it is, is anticipation of the problems and mitigation of them and figuring that out and being honest about it, having, having, forcing tech to be honest about the problems that could happen. And then at the same time, really having government bringing in experts of all kinds and not just the top leaders in tech, but real academics, researchers, and others with other points of view so they can at least make a decent decision about what should be regulated and what shouldn't be. I mean, that's supposed to be the way government works, right? Yeah. That's the hope. Let me ask you this. I haven't asked you this question. I've asked other people this question. Sure. So as I said a minute ago, we tolerate tens of thousands of deaths due to automobile accidents, and we don't give up the automobile. We would tolerate far fewer in the air, 
um, for various reasons yeah. that we don't well, really fully horrific. understand. They seem more horrific, right? There's a certain psychology operating yeah. there. So in the in the yet unconquered area of driverless cars, automatically driving cars, do you have a prediction of how much, uh, how many casualties a lot would be willing to accept to a have lot. that? You think so? Yeah, I do. I do. You don't I think, think it's every- more like airplanes. No, I don't, because I think once people start using them, they get it. Once you start using, it's have, just like. Have you been in one? Many times, all the time. When I'm in San Francisco, I love it. How I love is it? it. Great. Yeah. I feel you know. There's like there's one accident. This ter- of course it was a ter- but the original accident in this accident that caused Cruz to pull off the road was by a person. A person hit a person, right, with a car, and then it fell into the path of this thing, and it didn't know what to do, right. And so the problem is the intersection of humans with machines is a real problem. That's the real issues here. Is there's humans driving and cars driving, um, and also humans are very you don't know what they're going to do, right? And so you can't anticipate every one of their little situations with them. You can eventually, but not today. You can't. Um, I find them wonderful. I really like them. I think they'll save a lot of lives. But I think people can't think of that in the in the bigger picture. They're like, "What do you mean save lives?" Right? They just don't. They n- not everybody knows someone who died in a car accident. But the numbers are staggering. Right. I, I just don't see there's any other way to solve a problem like this besides getting people out of cars. That's the <laughs> driving cars. And I know they like to drive cars. That's a very different Then we have to make a societal decision. But in general, when I drive them, I, I, I feel very good about them. I, I, I'll tell you one thing. I've been driving them in them for 20 years. They keep dragging me into one. And a lot of them were on test areas, you know, parking lots and things like that. And I drive them in the streets of San Francisco now. And I you can see the the development has gotten so good. It's certainly not perfect, but it's gotten good. And I, I'm nervous to say so because of this terrible accident in San Francisco. But while that accident happened, hundreds of people were killed on the road by people in car accidents. And you just can't visualize that, right? Instead, you focus on this one horrific accident. You're just not going to prevent every accident. It's, not, it's just not going to happen. And same thing with electricity, right? Lots of people get electrocuted, but would we turn off the lights? No. You just don't. And and that's an easy one to make, correct? That's an easy one. Or buses or trolleys. Remember, if you go back in history, all these people were run over by trolleys back in the day. And there was all kinds of hue and cry to stop them. They're not stopped. By the way, let me just make that last point. This isn't stopping. So how do you want to do it? AI is not stopping. There's too much money, too much power. The tech industry has a lot of control of this stuff. And they're not stopping. And so how do we want to deal with that? It is not stopping. You have to accept that. Well, that's what makes the decision by the board, the initial decision by the board at OpenAI kind of interesting because it's not like they were the only game in town. Right. You know, there's this free rider problem or there's some other psychological technical term you can apply to it. If we put the brakes on ourselves, that doesn't put the brakes on anyone else. And that's lots correct. of other people are operating here too. And so just by force of technology, as you know better than most, of necessity, the technology always wins, right? It does. It always does. There's no, you know, I, I, I've just finished my memoir and one of the examples I gave was we were on the beach in Kitty Hawk back in the day, back when the Wright brothers were doing their test. You watch it take off, right? And it, it didn't fly very far and it wasn't very high. It didn't, it didn't do a lot. It was, I don't know, I forget 22, I forget the number of amount of time it flew, but it was short. Are you going to be the person sitting on that beach saying, well, this is going to be dangerous or... That wasn't high enough. This sucks. You just can't do it. (laughs) That's what people, it's so funny you say that. Um, I think I wrote my first paper in like third grade about Kitty Hawk. So I I remember it was in 1903 in the Wright Brothers. 
Um, one of the few things I remember from when I was in third grade. And I am reminded of that a little bit. And so it's fascinating that you mentioned it. When people are looking at what AI can do in terms of photography and, and film, mm-hmm. and they're saying, oh, that's terrible. I can tell the difference. Why does that lady have six fingers? Like mm-hmm. That's what it can do today. <laughs> right. Oh, no, this is very powerful. Give it a month, give it a year, give it three yep. years. It's very powerful. It's very, very powerful. But then it's sort of like nuclear energy, right? Right now there's a renaissance in nuclear energy and all this. Speaking of Sam Altman, he's got a company that's working on small nuclear devices, right? To put in the home, you know, where it would heat your home. What an interesting, it's it's much safer than it's been let on to people think, but they conflate them with nuclear bombs or nuclear devices and weaponry. And so, um, as Oppenheimer has so perfectly reminded us, the devastation is vast. And so wh- which way do you, would you want it to be a tool or a weapon? And that's the, that's the constant push-pull of technology. It is, it is often both, right? It is often both. And a knife, what's a knife? You know, I'm sure you've prosecuted these things. It's an, it's an attack vehicle. It's also cuts your bread. Like, what is it? And so I think that's, there's a very famous uh, Paul Virilio, I think his name is, he goes, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Yeah. No, I, look, something simpler than a knife. That's man-made. Water. Mm-hmm. Water is, we need for, I mean, now we're getting a little, maybe overly silly, but you need water to live and water kills a lot of people and can be devastating. That's right. You can have a tsunami, kills 220,000 people in the in the Pacific. So, yes. Well, that's nature and she's pissed. So that's just the way yeah. it goes. <laughs> we should stop. We should stop pissing her off. I want to ask you one more question about regulation. Did you have any reaction to or view of or the people you speak to, do they have any strong reaction to Biden's executive order related they to liked it. AI? They did? Yeah. What, I think what people, they like about it? Well, first of all, Congress should be doing this, but of course it can't agree on lunch. Um, they're busy hunt with Hunter Biden, which is our most important issue of the day. Um, I think it was, it was very even-handed. It was open to smaller uh, innovation and research. It was talking about responsibility and safety. It's certainly not enough, but it was all the steps in the right direction. And it actually established at least the U.S. was doing something about it, as opposed to having never passed any legislation during the internet era where Europe took the lead, which is not enough. Um, so I think most people thought it was very even-handed and directionally correct in that it celebrated the importance of it. While I don't always go along with tech people on this issue, it's important for it to be a democratic open process versus what's happening in China. Um, and they're investing a lot in this and they will dominate if they if need be. And they're very good. And so what kind of internet do you want? What kind of future of AI do you want? Do you want it to be a surveillance one? Do you want it to be one with all kinds of ways to protect ourselves against it? And so I think most people liked it. Again, the only issue is, is it enough? An executive order doesn't really make anything happen. It's just a suggestion. Do you want to give us a preview of your memoir and why you chose to write one? Well, I was paid an enormous amount of money. (laughs) I wasn't going to write a book and I've turned down books for decades. Like, what? write a Yahoo book, write a Google book. I'm like, oh, I'd rather not. You know, I don't, I don't, don't want to write the same book. I'd rather go watch Law and Order, right? Yeah, exactly. You're going to let Walter Isaacson write that one? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't get the chance to do the Elon book and I'm so glad I didn't. Um, I, uh, he's in the book though, for sure. It's my take on 30 years of covering these people. And I was there at the beginning. And so I'm going to tell you what they were like, and it's called burn book, which you can get an idea of what, (laughs) what I think. Um, and then, but it's all the subhead is a tech love story because I love tech and 
I am very disappointed with what, what the boys have done with the place, as they say, and the opportunity. <laughs> and so it's about that. And I think you'll like it. It's a, it, I, I, I think I maintain a love of tech and at the same time saying power concentrated in the hands of certain crazy people is a problem for our world and it always has been. And it, propaganda, narcissism, et cetera, et cetera, is, is always been a problem in our history. And with these tools and this power and this money, they need to be held to account. So that's that. Well, we're looking forward to when, when is that out? It's also funny, Preet. It's very, you'll, you'll I laugh. I was hoping, I was hoping it would be funny. It is funny. There are points where you're, there's one Google baby shower that you're, it's going to make you laugh out loud. February. Do you settle scores? I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you'll see. That noise is hard to put in the transcript. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. No, I have my opinions. They can have their opinions. How's that? Uh, it's out in late February, February 27th, I think. Okay. Um, cool. Do you think we can regulate Scott Galloway? Never. Not capable I've of tried that? so hard and I'm about to go do that right now, actually. <laughs> okay. We'll see how many penis jokes I can stop. I oh, can we have him arrested? Preet? Can you get a big job again and put him I in jail? Try. I can that try. That has to be great. evidence. We have yeah. to think about that. Well, there's lots of evidence. Kara Swisher, my friend, thank you so much. It's always a treat to have you on. Thanks, Preet. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Kara Swisher. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producers are David Kurlander and Noah Azulay. The technical director is David Tatashore. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.